Ever wonder the true power of sports? Well, you come to the right place. Welcome to the Sports for Social Impact podcast. I'm David Thibodeau, and I believe that by exploring the intersection between sport and society, we can better leverage the sport industry for maximum impact. We explore what sports true power is to understand the impacts on and the impacts of sports on society. Join me as we learn how sports can influence important policy areas such as the environment, transportation, education, and so much more. Nikos Lamanis is the co-founder of Football Without Borders. Football Without Borders is a registered charity that's aiming to harness the power of football and sport to deliver impact all around the world. They believe that it can start conversations on every continent, promoting connections that would otherwise not exist and foster a sense of likeness and equality. They bring the world's most accessible and followed sport directly to communities around the globe, providing equipment, education, and activity to those who are most in need. This conversation with Nikos is really interesting because they are uh, still an organization that's getting up and running. So it's it's interesting to hear from their perspective um, uh, earlier on in the stages. The, uh, getting everything that they need to do uh, up and running, and some of the challenges they're facing to start that to start those conversations and get the project going. So it, it's it's interesting to hear from Nikos that perspective and how we can support and we can learn from that how we can support sport for development initiatives that are that are trying to get started and get going. Okay, so the news for this episode is is very specific to Canada, um, but I. I thought it was really interesting, so I just wanted to share it um, because I, I, it does relate to thing, conversations that we've had on the podcast in, relating to placemaking, uh, urban planning, and you know sustainable and active communities and healthy communities. So um, I thought it was really interesting, so I did want to want to share and talk about it a little bit and share it in the space. So it's a partnership. Uh, this report is a partnership from Queen's University, University of Toronto. School of Cities and the Toronto Metropolitan University. And so this report is called the Canadian Suburbs Atlas. So it takes us through um, sort of the growth of the Canadian population and our cities, um, the 41 largest metro, census metropolitan areas. So the, our 41 biggest cities over the last, um, over the last like 15 years of, of, of analysis, but really looking from 2016 to 2020 to 2021, when the last census was done. In Canada. So I thought it was really quite interesting and I wanted to talk about it a little bit more um, and, and, and explore that space a little bit more too. So they, they, th- this report breaks it down into four different categories. So there's the, um, the active cores of cities. So this is where these neighborhoods are have a higher proportion of people using active modes of transportation, so walking or cycling. There's the transit suburbs, uh, where these are neighborhoods where a higher proportion of people commute by transit. And then there is the auto suburbs, where uh, these neighborhoods where people almost almost all people commute by automobile. There's knowledgeable t- transit, walking or cycling to work. And then there is the exurbs, very low density rural areas where more than half the workers commute to the central core. And obviously this is by automobile as well. So I think it's really a really interesting report. It kind of does dive into, you know, what why it matters, 
um, why this, why tracking this growth and how our cities are growing does matter. So in terms of health, um, you know, it, it shows that um, people who, you know, the, the lack of a built environment that promotes physical activity has shown to be a contributing factor to obese and overweight children and parents. Um, poor urban design can affect the walkability of a neighborhood. It also talks about the the evidence that shows a positive association between between the frequency of commuting by transit and physical activity. Um, it talks about uh, the the environmental sustainability of it. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, commuting by car is not very sustainable because of all the greenhouse gas emissions and the economic efficiency of of um, of, of our cities as well, because, you know, there are, there is an economic cost associated with the health, you know, um, so the pollution that's created by, by cars that affects health, that affects the economic well-being. Um, and further, there's also an economic, economic cost associated with, with traffic and congestion and, and, um, you know, wasted, wasted time. So it's a really interesting report and it breaks it down. And yeah, so, so looks at the 41 biggest cities in Canada and, um, it even has the report report even has like a map where it shows which neighborhoods are active trans or active cores, which neighborhoods are transit uh, neighborhoods, and which ones are auto automobile uh, suburbs. So it's really interesting and a really comprehensive report. Um, so to, to break it down a little bit. So in 2021, uh, the census showed that Canada had 3.6 are 36.9 million Canadians, uh, people living in Canada. And so out of this, 27.2 lived in the 41 biggest cities. So given that, out of that 27.2 million, so 13.6% or 3.7 million people lived in active cores in our cities. 11.1% or 3 million people lived in a transit suburb. 67.3 or 18.3 million people lived in an auto suburb. 2.1 million or 8% live in an exurb. So combined auto suburb and exurb make up 75% of commuters, of, of where people live in, in Canada. That's a huge percentage, and that's why it's so difficult to build public transit that that's effective, that reaches everybody that needs to reach, and you know that and and why it's so difficult to um, you know build active modes of transportation that are sustainable and and so it's real it's really quite interesting, and it shows um, yeah it shows why why it's difficult to to have this growth in Canada. Um, but I, so I think it's really quite interesting. It's a really quite interesting report. Um, and it also shows that between 2016 and 2021, only 18% of the population growth was in more sustainable active cores and transit suburbs. Only 18%. Um, to me, that's really concerning. Um, you know, if we're, if we're trying to build sustainable, sustainable communities, active communities, healthy communities, uh, inclusive and accessible communities, suburbs is not the right way to go about it um so we have a i think we have a long way to go to to creating trading uh you know creating more inclusive communities and 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 this is a really stark picture
that this that this report paints. So we have to do better. Um, so that is it for this episode. Um, or that's it for the news for this episode. We will get back uh, to the uh, to the recording with Nikos um, and football without borders. Welcome to today to my guest, Nikos Lomanis, who is the co-founder of Football Without Borders uh, in the United Kingdom. Nikos, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, start off by introducing yourself. Thank you, David. Thank you for having us. It's great to be on the show. Uh, as, as you say, my name is Nikos Lomanis. I'm co-founder of Football Without Borders, along with my good friend, Michael, in the UK. We are a UK charity. and I'm actually based here in, in the US, though, so um, as you can tell, I'm not from here. But um, yeah. Hey, awesome. And, and tell us about Football Without Borders. So before we start, I want to quickly address the football versus stock elephant in the room, if that's okay. Um, as we go through, I, I know that a lot of your listeners and uh, a lot of your previous episodes are with either US or, or Canadian folk, and, and it's soccer here, not football. So rather than change the, the name of the uh, the charity every time I mention it. I just I just want to make sure we know what you're <laughs> talking about up front. And, and actually, I realised when I looked this up, because I, I knew this, it's soccer here, but it's I wanted to check it's out. Same Canada, I'm pretty sure it is. But apparently, before the six before the 60s, it was called Football in Canada. So every time I refer to it, let's just maybe pretend we're in the 50s and we're talking yeah. about the same spot. <laughs> Sounds good to me, yeah. <laughs> so a bit about football without about borders. We are a non-profit organization. We're registered a charity in the UK, as you mentioned, um, but we're supporting initiatives all around the world. Um, as the name suggests, our focus is on football, um, most specifically the grassroots game and its you know, its potential to bring people together for positive change. Um, the the name football without borders, I, I could talk about it a little bit uh, later on, but it's it, it comes from uh, the dream of of ideally one day playing actual matches across borders, whether that's geographical borders, whether it's regional borders, whether it's even symbolic or traditional borders. But again, with that idea of bringing people together from, from either disparate backgrounds and raising awareness about situations uh, around the world, inequality around the world. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that you had um, activities all around the world. I thought you were really just based in, in, in the UK, really. But that's, that's interesting to know. And so I know that you're still a, a relatively new charity, and so you're still sort of scaling up uh, your activities and your impact and stuff. Um, but so, so one of your aims is to have, uh, you know, you, you want to grow the positive impact of football. So how do you envision doing this through Football Without Borders? Sure. Well, as, as you say, we're still a year old, just over a year old, relatively nascent stages of our development. Um, we spent the last year planning, building on network, advisors, and collaborators, we've, we've started gaining a bit of traction. But to take, to take a step back and talk a bit about how we're going to use football and the potential of football or soccer to make a difference. Um, I, I mean, if you look at it as a professional level, it, football's taken quite a few reputational knocks over the last few years, and which has kind of tarnished the sport in some ways, at least the, the profile of the sport. You know, there's, there's been a lot of corruption at the highest levels. There's financial gulfs between some of the bigger clubs and, and, and the rest of the game, uh, as well as, you know, more importantly, some historical and even recent stories of physical abuse, emotional abuse, you know, racism in the game is still rife, inequality, especially lack of diversity with, with non-playing stuff still a real issue. Um, but but all, all that said, 
there's a lot of organizations and a lot of people doing great things using football as a vehicle and you know, we really believe that a we can add to the community that, that's already doing that but the game in its most basic state really really has the power to make a difference um a part of that is in terms of popularity it's it's unlike any other sport in the world it's by far the most popular in terms of engagement in terms of actual play um when we originally wrote our uh, plan for football that borders i remember looking at at the time the viewership for the recent relatively recent uh 2018 world cup finals um and i, I recently looked again just to see how how that had changed for, for, the, for the most recent one last year um and it, uh, you know, over five billion people engaged with that tournament at some point in some channel uh over the course of the of, of the uh of the event which is you know, it's, it's most of the world literally most of the world and even from a playing perspective, over 250 million people around the world play for a recognised team, which is over 3% of the world's population are, are playing at a recognised level. And that's before you even account for everybody playing it in the, in the schoolyard and you know, in the parks day in, day out. Um, and I think that that kind of brings it to the second point. It's, it's very much one of the most accessible sports to play in the world. Um, you know, the, the basic rules are pretty simple if you kind of ignore the offside rule and some of them were the more uh, advanced stuff. Uh, it doesn't require a particular body shape or size. It can be played by all genders, young and old alike, which it is. The equipment that you need is, is relatively minimal. You can play on pretty much any surface, even if it's not flat a lot of the times. Um, and it's like the classic um, you know, the classic adage we have in, in the UK is all you need is the ball and a couple of jumpers for goalposts. And it, it literally is that simple to get involved and play the game. So when you put those two things together, you know, the desire to engage with it as a sport and the ability to be able to engage with it from a playing perspective, you've got the foundation for what's essentially a really uniting language, regardless of background, regardless of gender, regardless of age, um, which we think is a really important, really important point. And and I think what, what we want to do ultimately is use that potential as a uniting, la uniting language as a force for good. Hey, yeah, awesome. So um, so you, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, how you, you, you're, I guess, kind of like the overarching theme and the vision for it. Um, and so your mission is to harness the global power and reach of football. So your, your mission is to raise awareness of inequality and to alleviate the, the, uh, the plight of those displaced, uh, those displaced, underprivileged, or oppressed. So how are you going to do that? Like, what activities do you envision football, uh, football without borders taking to to achieve that? Um, what sort of actions do you do you imagine taking to to be able to sure. take that to to do that? I'll answer that in two parts. First is the eventual vision, which you know it's, it's going to be a journey to get there, and then talk a little bit about the short-term impact that we've made in the first year, and and we're looking to make in in the short term going forward. So coming back to the, the name, as I mentioned, the, the eventual goal is to organise football matches around in different parts of the world, potentially across actual borders, um, and then use those matches as promotional vehicles to raise awareness, as, as you said, um, uh, inequality, oppression, conflict. Um, so I, ideally what we want to do is partner with local organisations on the, on the ground logistics, um, engage with local sports people to give us the footing to promote from, um, and then create a series of, of short films, digital content, um, and gradually build a series of stories highlighting various challenges uh, in different parts of the world and use those as a fundraising tool to, to make a difference in, in those areas. Um, it is it is still a long-term vision. We It's going to be a journey getting there. We recognise that, and hence why 
over the last year, we've really focused on getting people on board who can who can help us get there. You know, right now, Football Without Borders is, is just Michael and I. And as well as running this, we both have full-time jobs. We both have young children. Um, so that focus early on has really been on, on getting us a, a team of collaborators, supporters, like-minded people and organisations that can help us on the journey. And um, whether that's through funding projects, volunteering, um, facilitating, getting stuff done, as I've said, on the ground in parts of the world where we don't yet have contacts or, or a network. Um, so while we're still on the first phases of that journey, we've, we've been looking at other ways to make a more immediate impact in, in, in the meantime. And one of those is to provide support and funding for initiatives that are already running. Uh, so, for instance, we've started collaborating with some charities in sub-Saharan Africa uh, to explore how we can get sports equipment to them to support local football schools for underprivileged children or places where maybe sport isn't such a priority or isn't even an option in the schooling system. Um, and also we've been supporting um, providing support for initiatives that are helping child refugees uh, displaced by the war in Ukraine, which is something we've been really taken a focus of in the first year or so. Yeah, so um, let's talk about that a little bit more. So that's uh, the the support you've been providing for or through programming for um, you know Ukrainian refugees. So how have you been doing that? What 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 specific actions has Football Without Borders been taking to to support them? Sure. So I mean, as a bit of background, when when the war started in Ukraine at the beginning of last year, obviously we were at very early stages in in our in our endeavours and we, although we were very consciously not politically motivated in terms of you know what we choose to support and how um both michael and i through our work um have both had ukrainian colleagues and contacts who were really directly affected by the invasion so we decided that we can make a difference here really quickly if, if we put our, our thoughts into this straight away um so one of Michael's contacts through works work organises vehicle convoys, uh, aid vehicle convoys, so ambulances and support vehicles, uh, driving those in convoy from UK and Western Europe across to the Ukrainian border, just over the border, so they can then be taken on by the Ukrainian forces and the community towards the front line and actually be deployed as ambulances, as support vehicles. Um, and as part of that initiative, um, Michael actually drove in one of those convoys about a year ago, uh, drove a support vehicle over there. And, and through that, we started making some contacts with the refugee community around Europe and through the community that was supporting those refugees. So uh, since then, we've, we've been talking with other charities in the UK and Central Europe to help fund initiatives that are providing sports facilities and activities by children displaced and, and relocated to various hubs around Europe. Um, We'd love to eventually turn that into something we can run ourselves on a more permanent basis. So engage directly with sports facilities, employ coaches, employ support staff to, to, to run more of what's already being done in terms of football training schools and just access to sport and access to fitness. Um, and most recently, we've just secured another ambulance to drive to Ukraine before Christmas. So hopefully more on this soon, but that's going to be filled up with equipment and clothing. Uh, we'll be stopping in Germany and Poland along the way uh, to drop off some of that to uh, refugee sports clubs in those areas. Um, and then we'll take again the, the ambulance along with the rest of the convoy over, just over the Ukrainian border uh, so it can be used in earnest. So, yeah, as I say, hopefully more details on that soon. But securing the ambulance is the important thing for getting these things going. Mm -hmm. Definitely. OK, so amazing. So 
Um, so we talked a little bit about what you've been doing over the last year since you really started up. So now that now you're you're I don't want to say shifting focus because you have been doing this already, but um, you know, looking forward, what what do you what is football without borders going to do next to I can, you know scale up? I guess. What we'd really like to do, I mean, we're we're going to keep our focus on supporting. Ukrainian refugees definitely um, it's something that's important to us as I've mentioned we started we built a network there it's going to be something we continue to do but we'd love to get back towards our vision at the same time of of, of really doing something across borders to raise awareness um, in in less privileged parts of the world and communities that are less privileged and, and uh, maybe experiencing conflict um, to do that, it's going to take much more than Michael and I. We need to keep building our network. We need to keep building partnerships. We're looking now to engage with professionals within the game, whether that's sports clubs or individuals. Um, back in the UK, we've had a, a few championship players or players playing at the championship who've, who've at least pledged allegiance to support us and promote what we're doing and and and, um, and uh uh, it just accelerates some of our messages, um, which, which is a great start. We've also started working with people in the industry who have more contacts and kind of good conduits for getting conversations started. We'd love to work with some of the existing charities. There's some really great charities doing stuff, not just with football, but with sports in general. Um, you know, obviously, from the biggest with UNICEF, they do a lot uh, with, with with soccer, with football around the world. But there are a lot of smaller charities that we'd be really, really keen to partner up with, at least in the short term. Ultimately, we need to get the name out there. We need to gradually get towards where we want to be in terms of playing those those matches across borders. Um, but we're still a long way off. And hence why we know that we want to keep making an impact on the shorter term while we build that, while we build that vision. Mm -hmm. I think... Um... I think having that that background showing that you've been able to have that impact will help grow that that name and that brand as well. So I think that's important to to keep in mind. And you know, especially for you know for new sport for development organizations, being able to show that you that you're making a difference in the year that you have those activities ongoing, uh, go a long way to to helping as well. Absolutely, have, having live stories and and being able to tell stories that that have a real grounding reality. We've made a difference. That's, that's where we need to be and that's where we're gradually getting to and as I mentioned right at the start it's really great we've had people in the UK specifically starting to raise money for the charity through their own sporting endeavours which is relatively new for us I mean we've been going through a, pretty much a global cost of living crisis no, no one's got much money to spare right now so it's it's really great really positive to see people you know, pledging their support to us and doing some really cool stuff um, to raise money for us hmm. on, on that note um, what are some of the challenges you'd be facing as a as a new sport for development organization? Like, um, is is it just mostly around kind of funding, or is it uh, are there other challenges that you're that you're running into as well? I mean, funding is always going to be a challenge. I think there's <laughs> uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential there. There's a lot of money in the sport to start with, and 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 I think some of it could be better better placed and for, for helping initiatives. Not just like ours, but across the board. Time is obviously an initiative, as I said. It's just the two of us right now. We need to build that. We uh, we need to build that network. We need to build that support system uh, to be able enable us to do what we need to do. Um, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of charities out there already doing some really cool stuff. We need to make a name for ourselves of doing something different, or at least being able to add something to what they're already doing that they currently don't do or they currently don't want to do. 
um, and them seeing some value in that. And but ultimately, you know, the end recipients having value from it as well. Mm, definitely. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that that you know, as you mentioned, that there's a there's a you know a lot of other charities and organizations doing a lot of work in sports development. But I think there's definitely still more space to to grow that sector. You know, I think it's still a it's it's still a really niche sector and it's not well known outside of uh outside of the sport development sector. So we need to keep growing that and then kept yeah, you know, as you say, keep building those networks and partnerships with with, with more people outside of just you know, just outside of, outside of the sport associations and sport clubs as well. Um, but just with the general population and, and um other other groups, um, which I think is a is a is a challenge for the sport for the sector for some reason. I, I think there's like there's yes, there's definitely a lot of money in sport and like a lot of a lot of um brands and companies and enterprises want to get behind those sport brands but it, that doesn't necessarily filter down to the sport and development sector it's very focused on professional and and, and professional leagues and, and elite sport um so it's a challenge that that that, we're, that, it, that, the, that the sector is facing so it's really interesting um that, that we can do that um yeah, so Nikos, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, that's like really all the questions I had for you, and I, I think it was really interesting to hear about um, your organizations that's still that's still you know new and still growing. So it's some some of the challenges and the work that you're doing, and and you know how you're going to grow and how you how you are going to um, grow the impact that you're having. So I think it's really interesting to hear from organizations at all different. Uh, you know, whether that's the start, the middle, and the end—not the end, but like ongoing—of um, yeah. the of their organization's efforts. So it's really interesting to hear how you're how you sort of came about the idea, the work you're doing now, and then where you see where you see yourself going in the future. So, thank yeah. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I do have one last question for you, and it's: What do you believe the power of sport is? Um. Okay, I, I think there are three answers to that question, or three parts to the answer, and I'll, I'll go through them quickly, um, in my view anyway. The first is the power that participation in sport has, specifically participation in team sports, you know, the, the ability to get people to work together towards a common goal. And that's, if you apply that to people who wouldn't normally associate with each other or wouldn't normally collaborate with each other, you, you've got the grounds to build common mutual respect, um, uh, and appreciation that can transcend the sports field. And I don't think there's many other things aside from sport that can do that. Uh, and the second, and again, this isn't specific to football, but football's definitely a good example of it, is, is the reach of the sport or reach of sport in general. Um, you know, if you can harness that to reach, um, to raise awareness, to make positive change, that's got huge potential. Uh, and then third, you know, we've touched on this already, but it's much more basic. There is a lot of money in the professional game, um, and a lot of a lot of the potential for that money to fund positive change in one way or another. And there, there are already some really, really great initiatives in, in play, as you mentioned. They're one that I often come um, I often find myself gravitating to when I talk about this is an initiative called Common Goal, uh, which is uh, founded a few years back, fronted by um, the former Spanish international Juan Mata. Um, where basically the idea is that professional players pledge 1% of their wages to charitable foundations or charitable initiatives, um, which is really great. And it's a great start. And, and the more of that that there is in, in the game, the better it is for everybody. Um, but there's always more that we could, that could be done. And, and I'd love for Football Without Borders to be a conduit for that. So 
thank you very much, David. Appreciate appreciate having us on today. Yeah, awesome. Thanks so much, and best of luck with uh, with your work that you're doing. Thank you, David. Thank you once again to Laura for coming on the podcast to talk about Learn to Camp and making parks more accessible. Now, I kept thinking about, um, you know, my, the, I kept thinking back to the conversation that we've had with the mayor of Banff already uh, previously on the podcast about access to the spaces. Um, and, not, I, and I mean physical access, access, right? So right now, we talked about how um, national parks in Canada are often sometimes very remote and not very accessible if you don't have a car um you know you know sometimes there's buses that go to national parks but really the only way of getting getting to a national park is with a car and so you know we were talking about um when, when Laura was talking about how you know uh, Glacier and National Revelstoke National Parks are two three hours away from Kamloops or Kelowna where some of their participants are coming from um I kept thinking about that aspect of it as well about yes, you know, we need to make, you know, teach people how to camp and teach people how to prepare for a hike and things like that. And obviously those go a long way to uh, making sport or making sport and recreation in national parks accessible. We also need to make the, the space physically accessible to everybody, right? If you can't afford a car or if you don't know have your if you don't have your driver's license, right? Um, it's very difficult for um, you know, a group of you know, potentially teenagers, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, who may not have the driver's license yet, um, you know, be able, it's makes it, it makes it impossible for them to get to those spaces and, and, and do something on their own. So increasing increasing ways of people getting getting people to those spaces is really important. And and you know, we, and when Laura was talking to that, you know, they there was a wait list um, and how many people they they have interested in these projects. Um, it goes to show that people do want to access these spaces and they, it shows to show that people do want to get to where they need to go um, in national parks or whatever to do to do these to do you know to participate in recreation and be outdoors and be in nature but they can't necessarily access some space because of different barriers so i we need to think about about that more keep that in mind more and and keep making those spaces available and there's always room for improvement and and we need to increase some um, of our transit options to to national parks. Um, often, you know, obviously often difficult because they are often remote, um, but we need to keep that in mind. So that is it for this episode. Um, thank you everybody for listening and we will talk with you next time. <laughs>